If you have ever wondered to yourself, why should I pray, this psalm is for you. If you've ever felt like not praying, or have had trouble starting to pray, this psalm is for you. This is a psalm that David prayed, the title tells us, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And this morning we're going to look at the psalm under two headings. First, why David prays, and second, why we should pray. So let's begin by reading the first two verses of the psalm and hear David's complaint to the Lord. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So first we're looking at why David prays, because at the outset, it seemed like perhaps prayer is pointless in David's life. David is in great trouble, and the trouble is largely his own fault. There are points in David's life where we can see he's in trouble, and it's really not his fault. It's Saul's anger or the Philistines' aggression, but here the trouble is largely his own fault. He begins the psalm by telling us about his many enemies, enemies that seem to be increasing in numbers. So the CSB says, how many, how my foes increase. There's a lot of them, and there's more and more every day. The title of the psalm tells us that these enemies arise from David's own son, Absalom. If you don't recall, the story of Absalom begins just a few chapters after 2 Samuel 7. In chapter 13, the trouble with Absalom began when Absalom's sister Tamar was attacked and defiled by another one of David's own sons, a man named Amnon. Absalom was understandably angry when his sister was attacked and when his father David seemed to do almost nothing about the attack. And this resulted in a a two-year plot on the part of Absalom where he finally gets Amnon to come out and he kills Amnon. Eventually, uh, or first Absalom goes into exile, he runs away, and eventually David invites him back and uh, kind of in stages. And there's a kind of reconciliation, but Absalom is never satisfied with what's transpired. And he's always plotting. And Absalom was really good at plotting. He knew how to play the long game. So after his return from exile, after he's invited back into David's presence, he spends four years going to the city gates of Jerusalem, laying the groundwork for a coup. The city gate in the ancient Near East was a place where official business was transacted. So there's other Bible passages, like in Ruth, where you hear about official business happening. You need to get your your will executed. You go to the city gate. Well, Absalom goes to the city gate for four years, and he stands there offering his services as a judge. So when Israelites would come to Jerusalem to have their disputes considered, Absalom would stand there and say, well, I'll help you out. And by the way, where's my father's representative? Why isn't one of David's men here doing it? But, you know, since he's not here, I'll, I'll do it for you. 2 Samuel fifteen six says that in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. 
Men from all over Israel had come and said, Man, that Absalom, he was a helpful guy. One of the king's own sons heard my dispute. And so when Absalom finally mounts his coup and he goes out to Hebron and is declared king, he's got hundreds, perhaps thousands of Israelites from all over the land who are ready to join him and to take the fight to David. So David is right. Many are his foes. Many of his subjects have joined the cause of his own rebellious son. But, but, but the problem isn't only the numbers. The problem is what these people are saying. The verdict of these mounting enemies of David is at the end of verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. They're essentially saying God is done with David. Whatever special arrangement they had, it's not there anymore. They're in a way asserting that the Lord has moved on from David the way that he once moved on from Saul because of Saul's sins. Now, if things were going well in David's life, if he knew he'd had a a good track record, perhaps these accusations would have meant nothing to him. You know, a leader of a nation like this is always going to have some opposition. There's going to be people who are upset, who are going to complain and hurl their insults. You know, the the road out in front of their house wasn't paved recently, and they're going to be mad at the king. But things are going as bad as they can go for David at this point in his life. His house is in complete disarray, as we've already mentioned. All he's done at the abuse of one of his sons against his daughter is just get angry. And even now, he's allowed his son's murderer to return into the fold. For that reason, you know, we can look at this situation and initially maybe sympathize with Absalom. At least in some limited way, it seems that he had a just cause, a righteous anger about his sister's abuse. David should have acted. And in some way, Absalom was a good brother to Tamar. But we see that he took vengeance into his own hands. And his vengeance was marked by lying and scheming and apparently simmering rage. He may have started off with a righteous cause, but the story of Absalom proves the proverb from James The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In his own case, David had been extraordinarily careful, even after he was anointed by Samuel, not to harm Saul, because Saul was the Lord's anointed. But Absalom, his own son, has no hesitation in mounting a rebellion and marching on Jerusalem. That's eventually what happens. He, uh, Absalom goes out and he gets anointed or he gets declared king by his army and then he marches on Jerusalem and, J- and, and David has to flee. David's household, as we read in 2 Samuel 7, was supposed to enjoy God's never-ending blessing. One of his descendants is supposed to sit on the throne of their father and to have God as their father. But now everything is a total wreck. David has made the decision to flee Jerusalem. His flight takes him all the way east across the Jordan. So in a literal geographical sense, David is headed back into the wilderness. He's reversing the trek that Israel took when they entered the land back in Joshua's day. David's geography is a picture of where his life is, on the very edge of the promised land on the run from his own son and his own subjects. So there in the wilderness, the accusations of his enemies have an intense and bitter sting. Look where you are, David. 
there's no salvation left for you. David has had a great fall. He's a lost soul. And he can only wonder if these accusers are right. In the book of 2 Samuel, the situation with Tamar and Amnon and Absalom follows right on the heels of David's sin with Bathsheba. David, this period of David's life is marked by sin and the consequences of sin. His life, his family, his kingdom, all in a mess. You know, some of us probably have found it somewhat ironic, uh, the news of the last couple of days of one of Putin's generals marching on Moscow and kind of smirked at the disarray. King David is in no better place. He's in a worse place, right? His lieutenant doesn't turn around. He comes all the way to Jerusalem. David's life is in a mess. Perhaps God really was done with him. Perhaps he's going to die as a fugitive in the hinterlands. Perhaps there's no salvation in God for David. Have you ever felt like this? Maybe you've sinned for the, the thousandth time that same sin. Your relationships are in a mess. You've got a deep sense of guilt and failure. But you're also facing these unavoidable, bitter consequences of your sin. And perhaps it's not only your sin that you're dealing with, but there's other people's sin that's mixed up in the situation. So you know you sinned, and you're feeling the, sin, the pain of being sinned against also. Then you wonder, how did I end up here? For you can remember a point in your life where things seemed pretty good. Back then, you could have never imagined falling so far. Perhaps you think what David heard. You're hopeless. Even God is done with you. Maybe it's your own voice saying that. At a time like that, doesn't prayer seem pointless? If God can't save you, why pray? How do you move forward when you're in a place like that? Well, somehow David did. The fact that this psalm exists is the first sign that David didn't fully believe the accusations of his enemies. He cried out to God. They said God was done with him, and yet he cries out to the Lord. Why does he do that? Why does David pray? We're finally ready to start answering that question. Why pray when prayer seems pointless? Well, the answer is rooted in the promises of God. David prayed because of the Lord's promises. To understand the Lord's promises, we need to kind of do it in two steps. The first step is to go back to that passage from 2 Samuel 7 and remember some of the specific promises that God made in that covenant with David. And then in the second step, we'll read the next few verses of the psalm to see how David prayed according to the promises just let me remind you of the covenant, of some of the promises. You don't have to go back and read there. I'll just recite what God said. So the Lord promised to bless David. He promised to give David a great name. This is an echo of the promise God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. So this first promise is a promise that David's going to be a part of God's plan to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. David has a place to play in that plan. In the middle of blessing David, the Lord also promises to bless Israel with the land that they've inherited in safety. So God's blessing of David is going to mean God's blessing of the people David rules over. 
The Lord gives David a specific promise of rest from all his enemies. He also promised David a house, meaning a household, a family lineage. He's going to have sons who are going to rule after him. He's going to have a royal dynasty. And God says this dynasty will never end. Included in this promise is the specific promise that one of David's sons would also build the temple, which is Solomon. God promised that his own steadfast love would never depart from David's house. He promised to be a father to David's royal offspring. He promised to discipline them when they sinned. The Lord would treat David and his royal sons as if they were the Lord's own sons. Let me read from 2 Samuel 7, 14 and 15. God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul when I put him away before you. When we wonder why David would have the audacity to pray when his life was such a mess, here is the answer. He knew that he had these promises from God. Unlike some of the other covenants that God makes, this covenant with David doesn't have any curses or warnings attached to it. It was in that sense a very one-sided covenant. Of his own gracious initiative, God made these promises to David. David had wanted to do something great for God, to build him a temple. But God says, no. Instead of you building me a house, I'm going to establish your house. I'm going to set my love upon you forever. As we've already seen, David sinned many times over and failed again in his own family. Yet, he was in possession of God's promises. And that's why he prayed. His sin and Absalom's sin was threatening to break the kingdom apart. But God's promises could not be broken. And these promises from 2 Samuel 7 are the foundation for what David prays in Psalm 3. Let's read verses 3 through 6. After his complaint, David turns to the Lord. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David here confesses that God is his protector, a shield about him. We've already seen the Lord had promised to give David rest from his enemies. And so David looks at his enemies and they're gaining strength. They're all around me. They're surrounding me. But Lord, you are my shield. When they're all surrounding me, you are surrounding me. David confesses his faith in the Lord's promise to him. He prays because of the promises. He also calls God, the Lord, his glory, the lifter of my head. Now, what does it mean for David to call the Lord my glory? It means that David recognizes that whatever greatness he has is due to the fact that the Lord made promises to him. David's great name is assured by the Lord's promises. As the Lord himself said, the Lord is the one who plucked David from being a shepherd boy. He plucked him out of his obscurity to make him a king over Israel. The Lord was the one who preserved David's life from Saul and the Philistines. 
The Lord is his protector. The Lord is his glory. The Lord has bound himself to David. So to say that you are my glory is to say the most important thing about my life is that the Lord loves me and cares for me. David understands. That's where my glory is. My glory is not in my great track record. It's in the fact that the Lord loves me and cares for me. In verse 4, we get more specifics of David's situation with Absalom. So if you read through 2 Samuel 15 through 18, you'll find it's kind of a blow-by-blow of the day that David flees. It recounts people he meets along the way. It recounts how he organized some spies to go in and infiltrate Absalom's inner circle. And even David plants some kind of false intelligence among Absalom's inner circle. And his story boils down to the crucial first night away. At least it's kind of compressed to focus on one night. And the question is, would Absalom strike quickly, which would have been the better path, and take David kind of unawares? Or would he wait and kind of formulate a better plan? And Absalom chooses to formulate the better plan, and and so David spared. He spared that first night. And so we see this in David's prayer. He recounts how he lay down and slept and woke again. Such a simple thing. But he knows it's only because the Lord sustained him. Just think about this. Even though David was far away from God's holy hill, he's out in the boondocks, and the person who's, who's at the holy hill is his enemy, Absalom. He's controlling the sacred ground. But that doesn't matter. David can cry out to the Lord on his holy hill, and from his holy hill he receives an answer. He receives protection. The Lord heard his prayer. The Lord sustained him. So even David as a fugitive on the run, the Lord is keeping his promises to David. The promises will not fail. This is why David prays, and he's not afraid of his many enemies, because the covenant holds. The Lord does not break his promises. So that's the first thing we see about why David prays. We also see that when David prays, he asks for the right thing. Verses 3 through 6 show David's confessions of the Lord's faithfulness. And then in verse 7, we see his bold request that he cries out. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Remember, the accusation of verse 2 is that there's no salvation in God for David. But now that's faded away. Those words no longer pierce David's heart. Now David is able to boldly ask for the Lord to save him and to confess salvation belongs to the Lord. He knows the Lord is a savior. He's personally experienced the Lord's salvation, both back in his, his history of his life, but even in this, in this night, he's, he slept and he woke again. He's been protected. Save me is the appropriate request for David to make at this point. It's not a long-shot wish for David to pray this. It is the prayer request that's according to God's character and God's will. God is the Savior, and God has promised to save David. And so David should pray, save me. That's what I mean when I say David prays the right thing. It's exactly what God's anointed king should have prayed. Another way to say it is, this is a request that God wanted to grant. 
David prayed for God to do exactly the thing he wanted to do, to save his wayward but believing son from wicked Absalom. And we can know it's the right request because it's in accordance with the covenant that God made with David. Another way we see David praying for the right thing is that his prayer ends with a blessing for all the Lord's people. So in other words, David's prayer is not all about David. David knows the promises that were made to him were made to him for the sake of God's people. God's promises to the king were a way of blessing Israel. Again, in the Bible's big picture, God's promises to David are part of the way that God is keeping his promise to Abraham. And God is keeping the covenant with Israel that he made through Moses. So David knows that he's playing a part of this plan to bless Israel. And that shows up in his prayer. He wants this greater thing. He's not just after his, the saving of his own skin. But because he wants, to, he wants to see God's people blessed. The, this prayer of David takes us into his very heart. We feel troubled with him. We see how messy his world has become. We feel the sting of there is no salvation for him in God. But from that dark pit, we get to follow David upward as he remembers God's character and promises. And with this salvation, he's able to boldly ask for the very thing that his enemies had been attacking, the Lord's salvation. We have the benefit of hindsight, looking back at the end of the story, and knowing that Absalom did indeed die, that David was saved, and he returned home from Jerusalem. In that sense, the Lord answered all of David's prayer. We might say it's a happy ending, but when we read the story itself, David's life is still sort of unhappy and still pretty messy. He grieves for Absalom. He's lost yet another son. His grief is so great that he's actually rebuked by General Joab because he's grieving over this treasonous son of his who's caused so much trouble. We see the Lord's salvation does not mean an immediate end to all of David's sorrow. He still faces consequences from all the things he's done in the past. And we'll see that he'll still commit more sins as his life ends. So the point of this psalm is not that if you cry out to God according to his promises, you'll then have an easy life. What David shows us in this psalm is that all of his sin and failure did not cancel the promises God made to him. Sin is destructive. Sin can seem to break everything, but sin cannot break the promises of God. No matter how David sinned, nothing changed about the fact that God is the God of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. David's sin cannot wrestle away salvation from the Lord. So nothing changed about God's grace or what he had promised to David. God's grace was greater than all his sin. God's promises endure. But that... Siri agrees. But that leads us to some questions. What promises has the Lord made to us? Where do we look when we are assaulted by the thought that there's no salvation left for us? How do we pray according to God's promises? And what's the right prayer for us to pray? 
none of us are King David, right? We, we haven't had this unique experience in all of salvation history where, where God has made very specific kinds of promises to us. We can't claim a unique covenant with God that's all our own. But we can see how the promises of God come to us through David's great son, Jesus Christ. All the promises to David were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. None of the other kings lived up to the things that God said would happen to David's sons. Only Jesus is the one who's the one of the righteous king upon whom, uh, from whom the Lord's steadfast love never departs. And we see that in Christ, God has made great promises to us that are even greater than the promises he made to David. See, Christ, Jesus, is the one who truly shows us that salvation belongs to the Lord. Right? Jesus is called the Savior. He's the Son of God who became man to save sinners. He came to save sinners like David, sinners like you and me. He saves us because he pays for our sin. With his death in Christ's resurrection, also, we have life. And so we see in Christ his life, death, and resurrection, our great enemies, the enemies that surround and accuse us, they've been defeated by our King. When we trust Christ, we're forgiven of our sins and we're brought into God's family. Instead of receiving judgment from God, we receive grace and blessing. These are the covenant promises that we plead when we don't know how to pray. To use Psalm 3's language, we can say, In Christ, the Lord is my shield around me. He doesn't protect me from Absalom. He protects me from his own wrath, the wrath of God against sinners. In Christ, we also can say, Lord, you are my glory. Because like David, it's true for us that the Lord loves us and cares for us. So we can say, this is the most important thing about me. The Lord loves me and cares for me in Christ my Savior. We are loved by God. For us to pray according to the covenant is not to pray according to the the Davidic covenant, but to pray according to the gospel. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we recount the words of Christ who says, This is the new covenant in my blood. The gospel is the new covenant that's been secured for us in Christ. By rights, we shouldn't have any share in God's love. We're far away from him because of our sin. But because of the work of Christ, we can belong to him. We can participate with God in life. The new covenant is our covenant. We pray according to that covenant. The awesome thing about Christ is the way that he was the only truly faithful son of David who ever lived the perfect son of God. He made no mistakes. He never wavered from what God told him to do. And yet, his suffering was greater than any man's suffering ever was. Right? We, recounted, we recounted the way that David, the man after God's own heart, he earned a lot of the suffering he had in the last part of his life. But Christ suffered, and he never deserved it. He was the faithful one, and yet he's treated like one of the wicked. David confesses to the Lord in verse 7, You strike all my enemies on the cheek. Christ's own cheek was struck 
so that sinners can be granted forgiveness. This is the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of the covenant that we belong to. All our sins were laid upon him. And this unlocks one of the puzzles of the psalm. As you read, I, or I've had this question, what business does David have speaking of the wicked? That God is going to crush the wicked and, and smash their teeth in. I mean, David and Absalom were both sinners. They'd both done wicked things. What distinguishes them? Well, humanly speaking, the only thing that we can point to is David's faith in the promises of God. And Absalom, in, in a sense, he should have had a share in those promises. He wanted the royal line. But instead of trusting the Lord when his sister was abused, he took matters into his own hands. He schemed and plotted and lied and took vengeance. Instead of trusting the Lord and perhaps going to his father, he said, hey, Nathan, we need to go talk to David again. He took matters into his own hands and sought to overthrow God's rightful king. He lived for his own glory. Now again, we can look at some times in David's life where he fell into living for his own glory and according to his own lusts. But we see again and again in David's life how David repented. He repented and trusted in the Lord's promises. He cried out to God. He turned to God in faith. What about you? Have you trusted in God's promises to you in Christ? Or are you scheming to carry out your own plan? Are you turning to the Lord? The Lord judges sin. He judged Absalom. He died a terrible, humiliating death. And the Lord will judge all his enemies, including you, if you don't repent of your sins. But the good news is that you don't have to suffer that judgment. If you trust that Christ, the Holy Righteous One, took your judgment for you when he died on the cross. The work of Jesus Christ makes it possible for us to pray when all seems lost. When David was on the run, when his enemies were growing more powerful, when, his when their accusations were ringing in his ears, he was able to pray because of the covenant that the Lord made with him. The same is true for us. When we feel Satan's accusations pierce our hearts, when we're tempted to think there is no hope for us, we've made a mess of our lives, what do we do? We look to the covenant. We look to Christ. The sins that condemn us, that would accuse us, they were paid for on the cross. The consequences that we fear may be real and painful, but Christ is with us even through that pain. The Lord sustained David through that dark night. He woke up again. The Lord was with him. The Lord was the lifter of his head. And in Christ Jesus, the Lord will lift your head too. The Lord is our glory through Christ, our Savior. He will sustain us. Sometimes the biggest act of faith is simply to pray. To pour out your heart to God. Psalm 3 is one of the psalms that we describe as a psalm of lament because it begins with this complaint. Complaint. We can complain to God. There's a godly way to complain. 
to tell God, Lord, this is what they're saying about me. And I'm tempted to believe them. And as you complain, then remember the promises. Remember Christ and know that the Lord is gracious. That he has been faithful to you by giving his own son to deliver you. Pray for the Lord's salvation. Confess with David that salvation belongs to the Lord and it can be yours in Christ. When we pray this way, we can be sure that we are praying for the right thing, the thing that God wants us to pray for. We can be sure that saving us is the very thing that God wants to do. To pray in this way is not not to offer a long-shot wish to God. It's to pray according to God's own desires, who said that if he began the good work in you, he will complete it. Our sin seems to break everything, but it cannot break God's promises. It cannot break his promises to us in Christ. As, as, we, as uh, Tim said, we confess that Jesus is seated on the right hand, at the right hand of God. And so we can have this bold confidence and hold fast because our hope is safe in heaven with Christ. It is unassailable. Our sin cannot sever us from Christ. He died once and for all for our sins. And so we pray because in Christ we are loved by God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we pray for hearts that want to pray. And when we don't want to pray, we pray for you to call to mind the blessings of Christ, the goodness and the glory of Christ, the love and mercy of Christ. Fill our eyes with Christ. We pray for hope and help when we're facing the messy consequences of our sin and other sin. Give us grace to endure and not to give up, knowing that we have a high priest who is tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, knowing that Christ sympathizes with us in our weakness, that he gives strength. Father, we pray that as your people that we will endure. We know that you intend not only to save us alone, but to save a whole people for, himself, for yourself. And so we pray that we will walk arm in arm to glory together that we'll encourage each other's faith, that we'll fight sin together, that we'll proclaim Christ to each other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.